Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Scott Semple has led the Connecticut Department of Correction since 2014, first as acting commissioner, then nominated by Governor Dana Malloy to fill the post in 2015. Today, where we live, Commissioner Semple joins us in studio for the hour to talk about the state prison system and criminal justice policy. Since 1994, the number of prisoners has dropped 30 percent to more than 13,000 inmates. The decline has led to some state prisons being closed or consolidated. And under Governor Dana Malloy, there's also been a push to change how corrections treats nonviolent offenders behind bars and strengthens efforts to help former prisoners reenter communities. Have those reform initiatives been working? We want to hear from you. Do you or a family member, do you have a family member that was involved in the state prison system? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can tweet us at where we live. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org. And today we're on Facebook Live. Just search for where we live and you can uh, see this conversation live in front of you and you can add your questions and comments below the video stream. Scott Semple, welcome to where we live. Thank you so much for having me. I understand you've had a long career with the Department of Correction. You used to be a frontline Correction officer, and now you've been commissioner for several years now. Uh, tell us about your experience uh, within uh, the prison system. How's it been for you so far? So far, so good. I'm, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, May 25th will be 30 years, and as you indicated, I started as a correction officer, and uh, it's a career that uh, I'm, I'm very proud of. Uh, I've, I've touched a lot of uh, different positions uh, throughout my tenure in the agency and was fortunate enough to be nominated by our governor to be now what's called commissioner. What led you to corrections? That's an interesting story. I was uh, teaching in uh, the Waterbury school system. Uh, I wasn't a certified teacher. I was just out of college, and I was uh, like what they refer to as like a permanent substitute teacher, come from a large family, uh, four brothers and sisters, and had a lot of student loan debt, and a friend of mine who worked in corrections says, well, they hire these people for as summer temps, which basically is they fill the void for people on vacation, and uh, I got the job and never left. Uh, what's it been like to see the shift in uh, how a prison policy um, is discussed in this country, this idea to end mass incarceration, to not be just focused on the punitive, but also rehabilitation? How have you seen that change? Uh, interesting question, because I started in 1988. So uh, there was a journalist who told me that you actually lived the mass incarceration because that's you know essentially when it was born. And then have watched the peak of the incarceration uh, census in Connecticut go almost to 20,000 and now at the 13,000 and change mark. Uh, it's been an interesting journey. I have to credit some of my predecessors who have been successful and kind of led us to this path where we've been able to uh, implement some initiatives that I think are, are beneficial to uh, reentry and rehabilitation. So. Uh, as I tell my staff often, I said we're not the Department of uh, we're the Department of Correction for a reason, and that is to focus on correcting. Uh, if we do anything different than that, then we should call ourselves the Department of Incapacitation. Mm 
So I'm just curious when we talk about the work that your staff is doing and how you're um, interacting with uh, people who've been convicted of a crime and are given a sentence, they have to serve that sentence. I mean, tell us like what what the daily uh, life of a correction officer is and that relationship between the correction officer and the inmate. How would you characterize it? Well, you know, uh, what we, what we uh, strive for is to uh, um, train people to be good communicators and to uh, work with the population, to be accountable to folks who want to be accountable to themselves. Um, uh, oftentimes, we'll talk about moving the agency beyond clean and quiet to go to the next step in initiative, and that is the, the issue of correcting. Uh, so these are folks that have uh, entered the back end of the criminal justice system. The role of uh, correctional professionals is extraordinarily important and I don't think it's enough credit because when they fail, uh, it's a public safety threat. Um, you mentioned that when they fail, it's a public safety threat. I wanted to bring up then that uh, case uh, earlier this year uh, when uh, an inmate uh, at a, a prison in Enfield um, was able to escape. How did that happen? Uh, multiple breakdowns uh, systematically. Uh, it, I, I can't say too much about it because it's still an active investigation. Uh, but uh, when we reviewed uh, the circumstances and and, uh, and um, kind of debriefed uh, what had actually occurred, we found some vulnerabilities. And in essence, what had happened when that unfortunate situation presented itself is that we kind of went back to the drawing board and we assessed every one of our uh, existing uh, 14 facilities. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to um, find some areas that we need to pay more attention to. And uh, so far, we have done that. I don't want to get into the details of what we've done because that would be letting the cat out of the bag, so to speak. But uh, we've made some uh, adjustments to how we uh, conduct security. It was an interesting um, uh, case from the perspective that the particular individual who had escaped, it's not typical for that type of person who's going to be released from custody in just a few months would seek to do that. Um, that being said, it's a lesson learned. So I, I should mention, because there are several prisons up in the Enfield area, this was the Carl Robinson Correctional Institution. Um, and you had mentioned just right now and also uh, back in January that there were vulnerabilities within security practices. You said you can't get into uh, where some of the breakdowns happened. Uh, but union says staffing levels were to blame. How do you respond to that? I disagree. Um, and uh, I went back more than 10 years to look at what staffing levels were now and then, and uh, in, in essence, there's been really no uh, distinctive change in the, the amount of staff that we have dedicated to that particular facility. Um, I, I respect their opinion in that regard, um, but uh, it, in terms of uh, the circumstances uh, from a human failure perspective is we'll find some culpability in that regard. But the reality of the scenario is, is systematically is, uh, is what we have to pay attention to. But I don't have any issues with the staffing complement there. 
This is where we live. You're hearing from Scott Semple. He's the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Correction. And you can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Commissioner, uh, that again, the inmate population numbers have dropped dramatically. Let's talk about what uh, you have been able to do as commissioner of this agency in terms of um, how many prisons do you operate and how many have you had been able to either close or consolidate? Uh, so currently there's 14 operating facilities. The most recent facility that we closed was the Enfield Correctional Institution located in Enfield, um, Connecticut. That was a medium-sized populated uh, facility, roughly about 700 incarcerated folks there. Uh, uh, since my tenure as commissioner, we've closed numerous infrastructures at numerous uh, locations, but we've tried to be very strategic about what we're, we're closing in order to make sure that we have a proper staffing complement and services uh, that we can deliver to the population. Uh, that being said, I've been trying to keep track of the overall savings since uh, uh, Governor Malloy uh, uh, nominated and appointed me, and it's almost at $30 million in savings to the state. Where does that money go, the savings? Back into the general fund? Uh, you know what? That's for OPM to determine. Uh, um, um, if I had my druthers, and I think the governor would uh, uh, agree with me, uh, we would uh, prefer to do some level of justice reinvestment on the front end. Um, but that being said, uh, we also have to deal with the, you know, the circumstances that are um, affecting um, the budget scenario here in Connecticut. So you mentioned the prisons that you operate. One of them is Manson Youth Institution. Yes. Uh, can you talk about that facility and who is it geared for and what changes have you been able to make with that, uh, again, this facility that, that deals with uh, young offenders? Right. So the Manson Youth Institution is located in uh, Cheshire, Connecticut. It was uh, opened in 1962. Um, we've seen, we have seen a reduction in the overall population there because there are less younger people that are coming into the system, but it services the population for 18 to, uh, up to 22. And uh, there's a, a full school there uh, and a number of vocational education programs there. We also instituted a reintegration unit there, preparing people to go back out into the community. Um, it's a difficult population, or I should say challenging population, because the propensity for uh, that age group to return is very high. And, um, and uh, you know, you're trying to move people into a different direction to make better choices so they don't re-enter the criminal justice system. So we've had, on a, re on a recidivism front, uh, and this is inclusive of the entire agency, we've seen modest reductions in recidivism, and that's a really good sign. Let's talk about, you mentioned the, the challenges within this population. So this is, a, I understand, a level four high security facility. So these are young people that, that have um, been charged with serious crimes? There's a small uh, portion of that uh, facility of uh, young people who have been charged with adult crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know the exact number, but it fluctuates anywhere from 30 to 50 at any given time. I'm somewhere in the 40s right now. So these are folks that have committed serious offenses that uh, have ended up in, in the uh, correctional system charged with adult crimes. Um, it is, uh, manages a level four facility, but we also have other levels of management at that particular site. 
Um, I understand there were reports back in December that the state was able to close a housing unit there because the population has decreased. Uh, What do you think is going to happen? There's been so much attention, and and Connecticut Juvenile Training School is not under your purview, but this idea that um, this facility in Middletown for juveniles uh, will be closing, but then there again, there's a gap of where will some of these uh, uh, young people go um, if they need a secure facility. Do you see any of that being... um, led to your facility at Manson? If they're charged with an adult crime and a serious adult crime, yes, Manson will still exist. Uh, uh, the, um, the, the change in the direction that the state is going will not change uh, uh, the need for uh, Manson Youth Institute. That being said, uh, I'm really looking forward and we stand ready and prepared to assist in any way we can with, with the judicial branch is going to take on um, um, what CSSD, I'm sorry, um, CJTS was mm-hmm. providing uh, under DCF. So uh, it's an exciting uh, time. It's also, uh, it's also a little uh, concerning from the perspective that um, judicial, judicial branch traditionally does a very good job at the programs that they implement uh, through mm-hmm. probation. We have a good rapport and relationship with them, and I think they're going to do a very good job. That's not to say that DCF did not do a very good job. Um, but that being said, moving in a, uh, a different direction, uh, if you build something and um, it, you know, they do a, a good job at the work that they do, you, know, you potentially could see an increase. Uh, you know, if you, if you, they say, have the saying, if you build it, they will come kind of uh, scenario. I, I've, I've observed that in our own system, dealing with mental health and things of that nature. But I'm very excited to see what they come up with. Uh, we're part of the JJPOC, which is the Juvenile Justice uh, Commission that uh, came up with the recommendation. So uh, we stand ready and able to support in any way we can. I'm focusing on young people uh, because uh, you and Governor Malloy have supported this idea of raising the age of juvenile ju- jurisdiction to 20, and that is a proposal before the General Assembly. Uh, why do you support that uh, that idea, that proposal, and where will that where is that going this session? I don't know at this juncture where it's going. I've, I've provided testimony in favor of it. Uh, I believe in the notion of brain development and neuroscience and everything that comes uh, with that uh, through my experience on a trip uh, with the governor to Germany back in 20, June of 2015. And I do think that um, the stigma of incarceration could last a lifetime. And for young people to enter the system, and as I indicated earlier, the propensity for someone to return who is young is greater than those who are older. Um, I think that we need to pay close attention to that. So. I'm all for looking at new ways of trying to manage this particular age group in in effective uh, uh, types of programs and education and and, uh, being able to get people to be law-abiding, tax-paying citizens. Uh, we Earlier on Where We Live, uh, we had Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane on, who's also part of this uh, Juvenile Justice Policy and uh, Oversight and yes. Commission, uh, JPOC, uh, uh, before the General Assembly. You know, he often talks about being concerned about what he calls our emboldened juveniles, uh, the young people who are stealing cars. There have been some high-profile incidents in Hartford and, and I think in some other communities where there have been accidents and people have been injured. Um, I mean, what do you think uh, in terms of uh, – re- 
how to help young offenders uh, when they are involved in these kinds of situations. Um, you know, he has suggested, Kevin Kane, that some of the reforms that the state has taken in recent years, including Raise the Age, has led to these juveniles being emboldened, um, to use his words. And what's your response? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because I don't think the, that the, this increase in car theft or stealing of cars is unique to Connecticut. I think it's a, a national problem. Uh, there's been a slight increase over the last couple of years here in Connecticut. I think there are a number of variables as to why that's occurring. Some of it has to do with the technology that exists within cars. Um, uh, uh, someone that I rely on in advisement said, make sure that, you know, if you own a car with a key fob, that you don't leave it in the car because it's just a matter of opening the door and hitting a button. Uh, that's not to say that uh, that makes it okay. Um, I think that there has to be some type of response uh, to folks who pose a public safety th uh, threat. Um, um, how to do that um, is is up for discussion. You know, if you're incarcerated, it's 365 days, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You know, maybe we need to kind of rethink that and um, look at other ways in order to manage this population in an uh, effective way. This is where we live. Again, Scott Semple is in studio with us, the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Correction. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. We're also on Facebook Live. Just search for At Where We Live. I want to take a call before the break. Mark is calling from Newtown. Mark, go ahead. Um, hi, uh, this is Mark Aldrich calling from Newtown. I've known Scott for many years. Um, I was the librarian at the Garner Correctional Facility. Um, Scott was the warden there and helped to uh, move our program forward. Um, I retired after 20 years, and now along with another theater professional, we're directing. We're still directing plays on the inside, and we're doing something uh, really interesting. We just formed a, a nonprofit, um, and we are able to put on some of the plays that the guys have done inside on the outside. Um, so that's, that's an exciting development for us. Um, Scott can speak more to um, um, our relationship. Thank you, Mark. So this is one of these uh, programs that you have within the prison system. Right. So we've brought the arts into our correctional facilities. It exists at Garner and several other facilities. It also exists at the York uh, Correctional Institution, Cybulski Correctional Institution with the Ju Judy Dworin Project. And uh, I can't thank Mark enough because... Uh, not only was he performing uh, this work uh, while he was working uh, for the state, uh, he's since volunteered uh, to continue that work and expand upon that work, and uh, a lot of folks have taken notice of it. So it, it helps in our efforts to bring some level of dignity and humanity into the correctional system to give people some sense of hope, which I think is vitally important uh, to run an effective correctional institution or, or agency for that matter. We're getting a tweet from Colleen, uh, who, which goes along with what we're talking about, that she said that she's heard some Connecticut prisons don't have libraries. Is this true? And can volunteers help with book donations and staffing? And she says, I'm ready. The answer is yes, you can donate books. And if you call my office, I'll be happy to uh, uh, coordinate uh, the folks that uh, um, you could uh, 
uh, speak with in order to do that. Um, some facilities have limited libraries um, and then some have some pretty extensive uh, libraries. Um, what's interesting is that uh, um, more recently we're introducing tablets into the system. In fact, it was your uh, uh, station that first reported it. And uh, within those tablets are uh, over 2,000 classical readings that will, will be one of the applications uh, um, on that tablet. Now, I want to put emphasis because people get worried about technology and correctional institutions. This is an embedded secure network. It's not a Wi-Fi network. People aren't going to have Facebook accounts or social media accounts or things of that nature. It's really uh, um, an Android that has a number of applications on it that we feel will increase engagement opportunities. Again, Scott Semple is Commissioner of the State Department of Correction. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to talk more about criminal justice reforms under his leadership. And take your calls, too. Again, join the conversation, 860-275-7266. And find us on Facebook Live at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on the state prison system operated by the Connecticut Department of Correction. Commissioner of the DOC is Scott Semple, and he's in studio with us today to answer our questions and yours. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email us, where we live, at wmpr.org. Tweet us at where we live. And we're on Facebook Live today. Just search for where we live. And uh, declines in the inmate population, as we mentioned earlier, have led to some jail closures and some consolidations in recent years. There have also been initiatives to focus in on certain groups in prison, like young adults, veterans, women, and offenders with substance abuse issues. We're going to learn more about that in just a little bit. I wanted to start off with a call. Uh, Valentine's calling from Hartford. Valentine, go ahead with your question. Good morning, and thank you, Mr. Semple, for being on this program. Both the earlier caller, Mark, and I are volunteers with an organization called the Alternatives to Violence Project, and one of our newest prisons to work in is the Cheshire Prison with the wonderful TRUE program. They invited us in. They couldn't have been more welcoming. And I wonder if Mr. Semple would talk about the TRUE program, speaking of young adults and their particular needs. Thank you for your question, Commissioner. Um, And what does TRUE stand for here? (laughs) uh, Well... It starts with truthfulness. Uh, I don't. Uh, I always get this acronym wrong, but <laughs> I, I'm not going to even attempt it. But it, let me just talk about what, 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 what the, what the uh, with regard to the question. We established uh, an emerging adult unit now called True, and um, this came to us from a visit to Germany. And, uh, and I talked a little bit about neuroscience and brain development and. Uh, um, Fast forward uh, our return from Germany, the governor and I, and I queried what the population looked like here in Connecticut. And at the time, there was uh, this was back in 2015, there was roughly 3,200 folks that were in the age group of 18 to 25. And then I uh, balanced that against the rate of incidents that were occurring in our facilities and found that that age group was responsible for 25 percent of the incident rates inside of our facilities and uh, challenged this, our staff to try something different. So we invested in uh, some training uh, for them uh, with regard to the whole notion of brain development and neuroscience and to try to create a therapeutic milieu within a correctional institution. And um, then uh, I had to empower the staff in order to, you know, put the tools in their toolbox 
and then you know, move us in the right direction as to what we can do to try to impact that rate of impulsivity. And fast forward, uh, now we've been uh, doing this for about 15 months. Uh, what has happened there is uh, beyond my expectations. Uh, uh, virtually no incidents within that particular unit. Uh, there's a mentorship program with folks who have been pretty much incarcerated since they're juveniles, who've also received special uh, training. And now uh, other states are mimicking what we've done. And uh, we've we collaborated with the Vera Institute out of New York, uh, who, who originally had sponsored the trip to Germany. And uh, I think we've created something unique. Uh, it's a national model, and uh, it's being implemented in other parts of the country. Is this also being expanded to the women's prison at York? It is, and uh, I believe on June 6th or 7th, I'm still uh, not sure on the dates yet, we'll be having the official opening of the what's going to be called the Worth Unit. Don't know what it's an acronym for. Um, the consumers come up with the, the names of these units, and i, I got to go back and do some homework, but... That, that being said, uh, uh, we believe it works, and that's why we're expanding it. Uh, originally, we wanted to repurpose an entire facility. Uh, budget woes uh, had an impact, but we were still able to do it. Again, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Amy's calling from Hartford. Amy, go ahead. Oh, doesn't look like Amy is there. Um, so when we were talking earlier about true, um, so I see it in front of me now, truthfulness, respectfulness, understanding, and elevating. Thank you, Lucy. <laughs> so, the, so your staff is getting this, uh, this training to work with this specific uh, population. But what is it about it that is working? Uh, it's, it's really about taking a different approach and to uh, – uh, have a, a better type of building trust uh, with with this particular population. And what was interesting uh, and enlightening, quite frankly, is and thanks to Vera, uh, we surveyed the population, but we also surveyed the tr- uh, the, the staff and uh, that were participating in this. And they, these were all volunteers. A uh, hundred staff uh, took part in, in this in training. And one of the things that was uh, most noticeable to me was that the inmates did not trust the staff and the staff did not trust the inmates. So what kind of uh, uh, therapeutic environment are you going to have if you can't build some level of trust? Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to do that by creating some ways to collaborate more with the families of these incarcerated folks. And um, it's been very, very beneficial. So... I don't know if you've had the uh, privilege of being there yet. You certainly are invited to come uh, if you have not, but uh, it's a totally different vibe in terms of what you're dealing. Uh, we're preparing ourselves to be accountable to these folks uh, because the vast majority of more than 90% will be coming back into our communities. The likelihood for them to come to uh, recidivate um, is higher than older folks because age is a big predictor of recidivism. So we have to pay close attention. And... Uh, I think by doing this, uh, we're, we're do, doing a world of good, not only for the, uh, the individual, but to our mission of public safety. Mm-hmm. So let's just say, fast forward, um, and two or three years from now, and we'll have some recidivism data from here. Uh, it may show that it has not impacted recidivism, but that does not mean it's a failure. Uh, we should also uh, evaluate the level of impulsivity or victimization of this population because that could be impacted as well, even if they re-enter the criminal justice system. 
Because you mentioned um, recidivism and reentry. Just last week was National Reentry Week. You're talking about these very specialized units that um, you've been able to roll out that are uh, working more in depth uh, with inmates. But what is being done uh, beyond uh, this particular unit to help people once they're done with their sentence and they got to go back out uh, into their communities? We hear often that um, you know it's not easy for them, whether it's finding housing. Uh, getting a job, or just dealing with the stigma of having that record? Not enough, quite frankly. So uh, we've partnered with uh, our nonprofit uh, um, uh, relationships. Uh, if they did not exist, uh, we, we would be struggling. And um, they have stepped up, even though we're dealing with the budget woes that we are in Connecticut. But, you know, uh, just the effort of stop taking certain things for granted. You know, if you talk to somebody who leaves incarceration after 20 years of being confined. And, and we could um, provide them with a number of different programs. We can provide them with all the resources that they need, you know, housing, uh, um, uh, health benefits, transportation, employment. But the most difficult thing to deal with is their wellness. Right. What got them there in the first place? And what we find is that many of these folks have uh, experienced some level of trauma at some point in their time, especially women. Uh, so it's, it's complicated work. And uh, we'd have to take it one step at a time. And uh, I can't thank the nonprofit world enough for stepping up uh, with us um, to try to uh, really do a better job of meeting the needs of the, of this population. But just envision, I use that example, being incarcerated for 20 years, you re-enter the community. And the reason I tell you this story is because I, I had the opportunity to meet with some of these folks. And so we take things for granted. If you walk into a public restroom, um, the struggle of trying to figure out how to wash your hands because they work by sensors now or how to navigate through a transportation system these little things that we take for granted cause a lot of anxiety for people who haven't been exposed to it. So just doing the simple things sometimes makes a big difference. We were talking about York earlier. We got a Facebook comment from Teresa. She writes, women are a smaller portion of our correctional population with different and more complex needs compared to men. She says she's encouraged by your support of Senate Bill 13, an act concerning fair treatment of incarcerated women. She wants to know what's being done to address the needs of women both at York and those reentering the community. Can you talk specifically about what this bill is? So the bill is designed to codify existing practices uh, based on a settlement agreement and add some additional um, uh, practices uh, that we think will be most beneficial to the unique needs of this female population. Um, and uh, what was interesting is that although, uh, you know, when I started to evaluate uh, the, the, the population decline, when you looked at the female population, for 10 years, it's been a flat line. And nationally, it's on an upward trend. And Why uh, is that? Why are the numbers going up nationally? I don't know. I don't know uh, for sure. All I know is I want to make the number commensurate, the percentage number commensurate with the reduction in the male population mm -hmm. here in Connecticut. So I challenged my staff. We put together an, both an internal and external committees to kind of work on initiatives that would be beneficial to assisting these women to go back into the communities. Most, most folks are 
are are the provider for their children and things of that nature. And and so, and then when you talk about trauma and uh, substance abuse, there's a higher level of those things that are in play. So we have to take a more unique approach to deal with the special needs of this particular population. We're just touching the surface. Two years ago, uh, we began this process. Uh, to date, we've been able to reduce this population by 15%. The goal is to get to 25%. Is it uh, a tough battle to convince lawmakers that uh, these kinds of programs are needed? Because again, um, depending on what side you're on in terms of you know what uh, the point of a prison is for, whether it's to punish or to help people rehabilitate them so that they can live a productive life once they finish their sentence. Do you find that there's a tension when you're before lawmakers and asking for support for these specific programs or supporting these kinds, this kind of bill? For the most part, lawmakers have been supportive of, uh, of these initiatives. I think that um, the thing that we have to pay attention to is there's failure points in this system because there's, it's a risk management business. We see people fail, they end up on the front page of your newspaper or, or on your radio show um, in the news. Uh, but there are numbers of, uh, of different folks who have succeeded. And the fact of the matter is we don't hear from them, right? So I encourage people who have succeeded in their lives post-incarceration to speak up, to tell, to tell the, uh, our community what it is that helped you move forward in your life. You would find that, um, because I spent a lot of time with those people who have succeeded, that I was hoping they would say it's our wonderful programs, our evidence-based initiatives and things of that nature. That's not what they tell me. They tell me it's their interactions with our staff and their peers that have influenced change in their life. So taking a different approach and just understanding that these are the things that are actually impacting people to make change in their life is vitally important. But just envision for a minute, I, I have the privilege to work with 5,500, a little more, staff that work for the Department of Correction. I, I'm told it's the largest people agency in terms of state employees. But my staff never get to see what success looks like. They only see what comes into the system. And we're trying to make uh, strides to show them what that, what that looks like. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, Scott Semple is in the studio with us. He's the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Correction. You can join our conversation if you have a question. And, and maybe you're one of the people that uh, the commissioner Semple just referenced, someone who has um, uh, completed a, a, a sentence in prison. And we want to know how you're doing. Or maybe you have a family member uh, that's incarcerated now. Uh, what kinds of initiatives do you want to see the state make? Again, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. There's a lot to get to, uh, Commissioner Semple, but we were talking about York and uh, the population there. Um, they can be unique because some of these women that are incarcerated may also be pregnant. There was a high-profile uh, story uh, recently about a woman that actually gave birth within her, her jail cell. How did that happen? Uh, good question. It should not have. Um, and uh, there's some level of frustration in that regard because I think it could have been avoided. Can't get into the details because I, you know, I, I, I don't have the permission uh, from the mom. Thankfully, uh, the 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 baby is fine. I had the privilege to meet with uh, the mother, and uh, it was my understanding that uh, the um, the staff who work under my authority were very responsive to her. The issue in question uh, uh, is, you know, what actions were taken by our healthcare provider. 
Uh, and that's and I'm not talking about the healthcare provider as a whole. I'm talking about individuals who are assigned to that provider, and uh, we took action in that regard and are still evaluating the circumstances. So I don't know what level of culpability may present itself uh, when the day is done, but the fact of the matter is, uh, I've been around for almost 30 years. I've never heard of it happening before. It's problematic for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- let's unpack this a little bit because it is complicated. Uh, you mentioned uh, there were some, well, some action was taken. So uh, the the uh, the group that handles healthcare f- in the prison system that's through UConn, the University Health? of Connecticut Correctional Managed Healthcare. And so after this particular incident, where uh, again a pregnant female inmate gave birth, uh, I understand two UConn employees that provided care were banned by you. I made that decision, yes. And uh, can you talk us th- walk us through this uh, contract between, uh, again, the state DOC and UConn? Because this has been a long time where they have administered health care. And there's, that's in flux now, right, where you're, there's going to be a change. Can you talk, walk us through that? Effective July 1 of this year, uh, um, uh, health care delivery will, will fall under Department of Correction uh, which is not unique. We did this back in, uh, um, we created the relationship with the University of Connecticut Correctional Managed Healthcare back in 1997, but prior to that, it was under Department of Correction. And um, I view it as an exciting time, but it's also a very anxious time because the last time I checked, no one was referring to me as Dr. Semple. I don't know a lot about healthcare, uh, implementing a healthcare delivery system. I've had to hire a consultant uh, who's been very, uh, helpful to to me and our administration in terms of what implementation needs to look like and to get to a community standard of care uh, beyond what currently exists. So uh, we're working collaboratively with um, the university um, to make this transition occur and uh, we're trying to uh, be uh, as transparent as we possibly can, uh, but there are certain aspects of the work that requires us to organizationally put things together and to bring certain people on board. Uh, What you're going to see is a much more leaner uh, management organizational structure and more emphasis on um, uh, nursing staff and prescribers. What's driving this change? Is it about quality of healthcare being delivered to inmates or cost, cost savings? well, look, uh, there's, there's circumstances where we've had bad outcomes. There's no, there's no question about it, but there's thousands and thousands of successful outcomes. Uh, I think that uh, I'm looking at it from the perspective of cost, and I think that we can do it in a uh, more efficient way, and uh, that's uh, why I'm focused on uh, bringing this thing on board. You also mentioned that you're trying to be as transparent as possible. Um, several media outlets have reported, including uh, Connecticut Post and CT Mirror, that state auditors are looking for that specific consultant yes. report that you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, looking at uh, the, the type of uh, medical care that's being provided. But the Department of Correction is not giving that consultant report to state auditors. Why? Right. So it's pretty frustrating for me, but let me just tell you how we got to the uh, point in time where the point the report was initiated. It was on my request based on information that was brought to me about cases that uh, we weren't in agreement with. Um, so that being said, I decided to be uh, bring in a third-party reviewer. Um, some of these cases are in active litigation. And uh, prior to um, pursuing this um, contract to do this work, 
uh, we wanted to make sure that attorney-client privilege was in was in play. Uh, so that is really the nexus of the discussion uh, with our with the auditors and others who have pursued this particular report. But let's look at the other. Um, uh, w- the circumstances could have been this: cases could be brought to the commissioner of corrections attention, and you can do nothing. But when something's brought to your attention and it's potentially problematic for you, you do something. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. I I prefer to do something to evaluate these cases. It was helpful to me, um, and we're going to move forward. These are state auditors, though, so that's their job to audit um, publicly funded agencies like yourself. So I'm confused about the attorney-client privilege um, as being the excuse for not releasing that report to them. I'm just as confused as you are. I'm following the advice of counsel. So this is what you're being told to do? Uh, I'm following the advice of counsel. Uh, we'll, I know that there's a pending uh, attorney general decision on this, and uh, we'll see where that goes. Scott Semple is our the commissioner of the State Department of Correction. And if you have a question for the commissioner, 860-275-7266. Matthew's calling from Bristol. Matthew, you're on the show. Go ahead. Matthew, are you there? Oh, yeah. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. What's your question for Commissioner Semple? Oh, the question for Commissioner Semple. Oh, there's many questions that I would have, but uh, the one thing I'd like to mention, Mr. Semple, is I was on the Osborne Grounds crew when I was staying at the Second Chance program at Carl Robinson, or uh, not Carl Robinson, um, Willard Cybulski. And the only thing that I would recommend is, you know, the whole Second Chance program going on with Amboy, there's people that need second chances. There's people that need rehabilitation. You know, I wasn't as fortunate because I ruined my shots at that previously. I had problems with drugs and whatnot. I, I just don't agree that the people come into jail for selling narcotics and then all they do is sit there and they can't wait because they're getting a second chance to go out and corrupt the community more. And that's the exact words that they use. I can't wait to go up and correct a corrupt community. So, Matthew, you're saying some people don't deserve a second chance? No, actually, some people do not deserve a second chance. How do you respond to that, Commissioner Semple? Uh, I don't necessarily think that uh, the thought process is wrong. Uh, I I mean, incapacitation, uh, incarceration needs to exist for some people. Uh, They're uh, a hindrance and dangerous to our society. Um, But that being said, that uh, oftentimes I say that a system without... Uh, hope leads to chaos. Um, just yesterday, I read an article in the New York Times about the circumstances and unfortunate circumstances that occurred in uh, um, uh, South Carolina, where seven people were uh, incarcerated, people were murdered, and uh, uh, about 17 to 20 folks uh, were seriously injured. Um, the uh, circumstances. Um, that were reported in, in, in the New York Times was, you know, there's a lack of hope. Um, it's a risk management business. Uh, we're not uh, going to hit the mark 100% of the time. Um, but uh, we should never give up hope on any individual. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Scott Semple is in studio with us. He's the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Correction. We'll continue to take your calls right after the break.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're checking in with the Commissioner of the State Department of Corrections, Scott Semple. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Something I was reading uh, when you were first nominated by Governor Malloy in 2015, he cited your work, uh, Commissioner Semple, Semple, uh, in supervising and treating inmates with mental health needs. And I'm curious, when we talk about uh, that, uh, also the opioid crisis uh, in our communities around uh, the country, how uh, how does the prison system uh, look at ways to help uh, inmates uh, that have dealt with substance abuse issues? We have uh, int- introduced a number of uh, tier programs. Uh, they have existed for quite a period of time, and they're, and they're directed by our substance abuse counselors. But we also have done moved in the direction of medication-assisted therapy, and that's uh, something that we're piloting at four of our facilities. And let me just emphasize, we've done this with little to no money. It's through partnerships with um, a number of different um, uh, entities uh, to fund uh, opportunities for uh, medication-assisted therapy, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, Rhode Island is probably the best example of... uh, of what medication-assisted therapy can look like. But just in, think about it for a minute. Last year, there's a little over 900 folks who have overdosed and, and have succumbed to this, this crisis. Um, and more than 60% of those folks at one time uh, were in the Department of Correction. So I think we have a very, very serious issue in our hand on our hands. And uh, if, I, if I had my druthers, I w- would want to expand it. Now, going back to what the new healthcare delivery system is going to look like in July, I will have a dedicated physician just to work on that issue. So there's a pilot that uh, does the Medicaid-assistant treatment to some uh, inmates who've had substance abuse issues, but not something that you can do system-wide. I have not been able to initiate system-wide just due to being responsive to my budget obligations. Uh, when you mentioned Rhode Island, uh, their success, so they saw a significant drop in post-incarceration drug overdose deaths and contributed to an overall drop in uh, ODs uh, statewide. Launched in 2016, the only one of its kind in the nation screens all Rhode Island inmates for opioid use disorder and provides medication for addiction treatment or MAT for those in need. Um, Rhode Island, uh, much smaller uh, than Connecticut. Mm. So you feel like have they been able to get any kind of private support? What do you know about their program? Uh, it's an, it's uh, funded at the state level, and um, as far as I know, I think it has attracted some grants uh, because of uh, they're doing it on a more comprehensive uh, level. Uh, I think they, like you indicated, they they're, they're leading the way for the rest of the country. Um, we are finding our way. Uh, I think we're we're doing much better than other jurisdictions, but. Uh, I, quite frankly, I'm very envious of what they have the capacity to do, and I would like to do much, much more. So the, the multi-millions in savings that the prison system has been able uh, to get over the years, that's something that, that lawmakers can help you with if you wanted to expand this program. They could allocate those dollars to help? Yeah, you know, I think I think, I think for, I can speak for the governor. If he had his druthers, he would want to put more investment into this issue. Uh, and I can, and I think a lot of lawmakers have an interest in it as well. There's a bill out there uh, that would put us on par with Rhode Island, but it's it's uh, it's uh, fairly expensive to do. And uh, you know that that's uh, the, the most frustrating part is that you know you can you know it works, and you have the, uh, uh, you know that it'll have a healthy impact uh, for people who are returning into the community, 
and it's not just for incarcerated people, it's for people in general. We have done some um, uh, alignment to inpatient uh, services for people who are going back into the community, and we have a program within the system called the TOP program, an acronym for something I can't tell you. <laughs> but uh, in essence, if people um, uh, experience some level of uh, decompensation, we can be responsive to them. Greg's calling from New Haven. Greg, uh, we have, we're short on time. Quickly ask your question, please. Uh, good morning, Commissioner. Uh, I am a uh, criminal defense attorney. I'm just curious. The, the uh, state transports uh, prisoners for every court appearance, and oftentimes nothing substantive happens. Uh, these detainees get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. They're put in a bullpen. They wait around all day long. There's a tremendous cost to the state. There's a security risk, I'm assuming, associated with transporting uh, inmates. And I'm just wondering if any thoughts been given to finding a better way uh, to do that. Mm. Thank you. Commissioner. Well, thank you for that question. I think there are some better ways we can use technology uh, more efficiently um, to potentially do some video uh, uh, stuff within our correctional facilities. Uh, you have two different branches of government, executive and judicial branch. They call for someone to be a court. We get them there. Uh, more often than not, I don't know what type of activity is occurring within the court. And uh, we've been having, uh, interesting enough, uh, some more active discussion about what we potentially can do to do that in a more efficient way. But you're, you're right that this has been uh, a matter of practice for as long as I can remember. Uh, Governor Malloy's uh, term uh, is nearing an end. What's next for you, Commissioner Semple? What do you think your legacy will be? And will you reapply for the job? I haven't decided <laughs> yet. Uh, I think my, my legacy is, uh, quite frankly, will be determined by the folks that I have the privilege to, uh, to work with and the po folks that I may, may have impacted uh, in their lives through my work. Um, that, that being said, uh, I'm still very energized. Um, you know, I, I will I will tell you this, that I feel that I have a slight advantage because I have a governor who has supported uh, me and um, and I've supported him and complimenting where he wanted to go with criminal justice reform. Now, when I travel around the country, it's all about Connecticut, and that's because of his leadership. Uh, we're almost out of time, uh, but uh, someone wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more about what reforms you'd want to see exist into the new administration. Well, I'm hoping that the things that we've done will be embedded into the cultures of the agency. Um, I think that as we are able to um, reduce this population, we may have the ability to kind of rethink what incarceration looks like. As I mentioned before, that you have the 365, seven-day a week, 24-hour-a-day type of uh, uh, option for people who enter the, the, the correctional system. But if you're dealing with substance abuse-related issues, um, and let's just so I'll use the example if you're a, a weekend user, you know, maybe justice looks like incarceration during the weekends and then, um, you know, working on uh, putting in the appropriate programs in place to assist. Scott Semple again, Commissioner of the State Department of Correction. Uh, we're sorry we're out of time. There's so much more to talk about. We appreciate you. your time today. Thanks to our Facebook Live audience. Uh, today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. <laughs>